Good, good morning, Hayden Bible Church. Happy post-Thanksgiving, pre-Christmas Sunday. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your sacrifice. Lord, you washed away every stain. You've put away our sin as far as the east is from the west. You've made us accepted. You've imputed a righteousness foreign to us, to us, Lord. You've brought us near by faith. Lord, we gladly serve you. We, we thank you. We're grateful that you even allow us to be part of worship. Today, Lord, we pray that you're pleased and blessed by the time. We pray that this, the, the, all of the songs that, that we sing, the word that we sing, Lord, rises up and blesses your heart. And Lord, we pray that the ministry of the word pleases you. In Christ's name, amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, watching the election on TV, uh, totally blown away that the results were so equally divided. Is anybody else like that? I was blown away that it wasn't a landslide victory in the conservative direction. How, how could it possibly be that after all that's happened in California, for instance, that Gavin Newsom was reelected by nearly two million votes? Which, by the way, probably, I think, coincidentally, is the same number of houses that have been built on the Rathrum Prairie. Sixty <laughs> percent of the vote. I was watching the, these returns, and I was thinking, if we could just have a landslide in the right direction, literally, if, if, we, could, if we could somehow control the outcome of this election, and things would, that things would finally happen the way we wanted Good things would happen. Righteousness would finally prevail. We could get closer to the righteous nation that we want so badly. And the tide of American culture would change for the better. Maybe extrapolating that a bit further. If I took that same thinking processes to the end of where I was headed in my mind as I was watching TV, inventing all this stuff. Maybe if we could just control our own future. Build our own society. Create our own state, so to speak. We could finally achieve a good society and, and find prosperity and wellness. If we could be in control, good things would happen. Is where the extension of what I was thinking would eventually go. Obviously, the musings of my heart were really misdirected. Proverbs 18.11 from the Legacy Standard Bible this morning is our reality check that a, man's, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own delusion. The security of what we build, independent from God, whether it be a nation or a city or a church or a, even a marriage or raising kids, the security of our own efforts is a delusion without his sovereign hand involved, guiding every step with wisdom and strength from his spirit-empowered word as we walk by faith. In fact, our great God tells us this morning, he says, from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be presented to my name, as well as a grain offering that is clean, for my name 
will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. The name of Yahweh is the strong tower. Amen? In our passage this morning, we see secularism as a wolf disguised with sheep's clothing, zipped up in a costume of reasonableness and and love and, and freedom independence even, the kind of secularism that you see on the, on the news every single night. Secularism dressed up like the woman named Folly in Proverbs 9, boisterous, obnoxious even. And she cries out and says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. She says, come to my city. Come to my tower. You and I know the dead live there. How can you and I finally find some rest, finally end our own control tactics, give up on taking our cues from the godless political news and media industry who pretend that there's no God? How do we finally live in reality and finally set our eyes on a future that's ordained by our great God? I'll tell you how. We live by the word. Listen to our passage in Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. It says, now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it happened as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they have begun to do. So now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's language. So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The context of our passage this morning is set after the flood, yet prior to the flood, the first Adam In the garden where God had blessed Adam and Eve, both made in the image of God, and and commanded Adam in Genesis 1 to to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Stunningly, God had put all things in subjection under Adam's feet. Adam was made a little while lower than angels, Scripture says. The Lord crowned him with glory and honor, and he appointed him to rule over the work of his hands. And as we know, as the federal head of humanity, Adam chose rebellion. He he disobeyed the Lord's command of dominion. He wasn't faithful in his house, so to speak, and he fell. Another Adam would be needed. Who would the Lord get to accomplish this command of dominion over the whole planet? Who who would finally spread the image of God as broadly as the waters cover the sea? Whose kingdom would finally spread to the four corners of the earth? 
Who would finally do the will of God? Again, after the fall and after the flood, a kind of a new type of Adam, Noah was sent out reminiscent of the first Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And of course, Noah set out in obedience to the mandate and and from his sons, the whole earth was scattered abroad, the text tells us. Noah became a bit of a hobby farmer, by the way, for 350 years. He he tilled the soil. He was working to subdue the the post-flood land, sending out his sons in obedience to God's command. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, headed out in their their three different directions to steward the earth. It turns out in chapter 10, by the way, the passage right before our passage, it's the account of that expansion. And you can read the account of each of their generations, each according to their own languages, it says. Each according to their own languages as they spread out in different directions. And, and, and as you heard when we read through it, our passage today appears to occur prior to the account of the spread of each of Noah's son's families described in chapter 10. So the text says, beginning in Genesis 11.1, 1, our passage this morning, it says, Now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. The whole earth, every place occupied by people spoke the same language. And literally, the, the Hebrew says that they had one lip. They had one set of words. And, and the text continues in verse 2. It says, And it happened as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. It turns out that Shinar, by the way, is the more ancient name for Babylon. If you look up to Genesis 10.10, a guy named Nimrod was the king of Shinar. Nimrod's name means we shall rebel. So you can see what's coming. The text doesn't say uh, 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 anything other than uh, that that Nimrod was a hunter and a warrior. Um, By the way, I'm glad that he wasn't a fisherman because that's the the righteous uh, sport. By the way, Nimrod, you can, you'll see, he wasn't a follower of God. He, he also built the city of Nineveh. Nimrod was in the line of Noah's son's uh, son, Ham. And he, and he must have been a charismatic leader, kind of an easy guy to follow, because he'd enchanted a whole clan out of the, of, of the clan of Shem to follow him into our passage this morning in a rebellion against the purposes of God. So they journeyed east, the text says, and they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. They stopped moving. What were they supposed to be doing? They were supposed to be spreading out. Uh, Under the blessing of God, they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. They were to spread the image of God over the entire planet. They didn't want to do that. They had other plans. This is the first kingdom mentioned in the Bible, by the way. Nimrod appears to be the first king of the first kingdom mentioned in the Bible. And he and his unfaithful buddies from Shem, their kingdom is the opposite of the type of kingdom that God had demanded or commanded. Nimrod came by his ungodly, rebellious characteristics, honestly, as a son of fallen and disobedient Adam. And like Cain, Adam's son who in Genesis 4, verse 17, actually built his own city. 
and named it after his own son. It's so interesting and evil at the same time how in our fallenness we take what was God's good design, we take what was his good intention according to his good purposes, whether it be for marriage, whether it be for sexuality or vocation or even our emotions, or the fundamental expansion of his image throughout the planet, and we live it out in a sinful, convoluted way in rebellion to his wonderful design. Sin messes everything up. There's still hope. There's a, another city that's being constructed that we're going to talk about later. Back to verse 3. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. They said to one another, the text says, In scripture, there's quite a few times where this same phrase takes place. It's kind of like a dangerous thing to do when when you have no interest in understanding the mind of God. That's what happened with Joseph's brothers before they threw threw him into a pit. They said to one another. That's what the Israelites did when they decided that they wanted to go back to the wonderful life in Egypt that they had. That's what the soldiers crucifying Jesus did before they cast lots to decide who got his clothes. Let's talk among ourselves, they would say, and let's do what makes sense to us. I wonder in your life, what's made sense to you? What's felt good to you? What seems pragmatic and sensible to you? within your own reasoning? and What innovative plan do you have to achieve your purposes as opposed to the purposes of God? I, if you're like me, you've had a lot of them. Helping yourself to happiness in a sense. that They make sense in your own mind, but you, you never seek the wisdom from above or the purpose from above. So back to verse 3. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And and they had brick for stone and they had tar for mortar. I wonder, again, how many of us here have figured out a plan that just made perfect sense? Your own ingenuity, your cleverness has opened a door for rebellion. You decided to keep it a secret because, because no one would understand or approve. Plus, you'd never ask God for his direction on it because he might take away your pleasure. So you go for it. And after a time, and again, and more going for it, you become its slave. What's that like? I know what it's like. You thought you could manage it, but but maybe after 10,000 just one more times... Now you robotically obey its voice. You're the slave of the one whom you obey, Scripture says. Interestingly, the future of these same people in our passage would eventually be in the brick-making industry, wouldn't it? Eventually, Pharaoh in Egypt would say to them, Why haven't you completed your quota? Get to work. Where's my pile of bricks that I need so that mine own name could be made great? More bricks, less straw. Work. Verse 4, and they said to 
They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. By the way, the Moody Commentary notes, it says this is, the, in essence, the first expression of secular humanism, the promotion of human values and achievement to the exclusion of theological ones. In essence, they were saying, if we're going to accomplish what we want, we need to make it happen. Let's do this so that we can make our own name great. Let's build for ourselves a city. Let's build for ourselves a tower who, whose top will reach to heaven. Let's make for ourselves a name. A city, a, a tower, and a name. Going back to the election and my faulty thinking processes as I was sitting there watching TV... I realize that even conservative secularism, conservatism not founded on Yahweh and his Christ, that kind of conservatism is totally bankrupt. There's no hope in it. You can't build a heavenly city independent of the careful hand of God. It can't happen. In fact, the thought of it, it needs to make us shiver in repentance Let us build for ourselves a city. We don't want to be spread out. In the scriptures, you can take a look. In the cities of men, they seem to go bad. Of course, as we mentioned, Cain, who was under a curse, disobediently built his city, the city of Enoch. And even though God's judgment to him was to be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, And remembered already that Nimrod built the great city Nineveh that eventually became the home of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, the enemy of Israel. And Nineveh's wickedness piled up to heaven until their judgment was proclaimed. And of course, in Genesis 13, Abraham or Abram lived in the land, but Lot headed for the cities of the valley. And he pitched his tents near the city and eventually moved in with the Sodomites. And we, we know that God eventually fires down judgment against earthly cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that even Jerusalem and the, the city of David was eventually doomed to be judged herself in AD 70 as she's referred to in Revelation as Sodom and Egypt and even Babylon. I wonder if country living has some merit. But there's another city Another city that you and I need to talk about today, the real city, the the city with foundations whose builder and architect is God, not Nimrod or, or some other rebellious man, but God, the city whose people have heavenly citizenship, yet they live on earth as their king reigns from his throne, spreading his dominion as he subdues every other kingdom with his powerful gospel, and eventually his will be the only kingdom remaining. Every knee will bow. This is the city, Scripture says, is the dwelling place of the Most High the greatly to be praised holy mountain of God, the head of the mountains, the the city of righteousness, the city of the Lord, Zion. Hebrews 12 calls her Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the church, it says, and Christ, the king of glory 
is her head. This is the city that the Apostle John in Revelation calls the the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. We are your radiant bride, we just sang. The faithful wife, the the city of born again trusters in the cleansing blood of Christ. Are you a citizen of this faithful Jerusalem from above who was free this morning? This is the city God's building. Scripture says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. His city will stand. His future has a hope, not man's. Back to our passage in Genesis 11, again from verse 4, the Shemites under the headship of a rebellious Nimrod. Again, they say, let us build for ourselves a tower whose top will reach into heaven. A a city, a tower now in a name. You could look at this tower in a couple of different ways. You could see it as sort of a temple in the sense that earth and heaven would be connected, at least in their imaginations, like the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon. Uh, would eventually achieve uh, through the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And, And in the ultimate sense, would be kind of a false prefabrication of God's true temple, Jesus Christ, where heaven and earth do, in fact, come together. The Holy Temple in the Lord, which is the dwelling place of God in the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 2, the church. Maybe another way you could look at this tower is that it's simply a grand exposition of their human endeavor to make their own name great in their own eyes. Either way, the tower was constructed in rebellion to the mandate of God. They made it for themselves, for their own notoriety, for, and likely for their own security. But Scripture says the Lord is against every lofty tower built on the sandy foundation of human pride, built on secularism that says we don't want or need a God, the same secularism that says I don't need saved. Any of you kooks out there who are Christians who think we do or I do, you're just being a hater because I'm my own God. Don't rob me of my identity. Finally, in verse 4, They say, let us make for ourselves a name. In scripture, a name is the expression of who you are. It's your identity. And again, in terms of people like Nimrod, like we've already said, it means rebellious one. So in in that sense, the Shemites building this city and the tower did make a name for themselves. They were rebellious to the command of God. They didn't want someone giving someone else from outside of them giving their identity to them. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to establish their own self-proclaimed identity, something that came from within them. On a side note, you know our secular culture is full of this today. This is the spirit of our culture. If you're a boy... In our current culture, you can identify as a girl, which is now expressed as your identity. And anyone who says otherwise is attacking the core of who you are. 
Since we don't know who we are and we want to establish that, we look within ourselves. And and our fallen desires, our passions, help us find our own definition of who we are. In his book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman gives a bit of credit to Sigmund Freud for, for connecting sexuality with identity. And if a Christian comes along and says, uh, your desires are sinful, this isn't merely pointing out a transgression like you're a drunkard or something like that. This is attacking the person at the core of who they believe themselves to be. This is really a serious issue that we need to understand as we speak the truth of the gospel to the LGBTQ plus community. In fact, there's sort of a tribalism that's been created over the years in this sense. And I, rem- I know you remember from the news the other night with reference to those horrendous killings at the Colorado Springs nightclub. The, the reporter on the news said that the nightclub served as a refuge for the LGBTQ plus community. A refuge, a place to huddle together as one, a place to escape the critical hearts of those who refuse to acknowledge their self-proclaimed identity. Our people in Genesis 11 that we're talking about today wanted to establish their own identity. They wanted to make a name for themselves. But just for a moment, let's look closer in your Bible and maybe turn the page to Genesis 12. Here we see uh, another Adam, in a sense, Abram. God tells him in kind of a spirit of what he communicated to Adam and Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth. The text says, Yahweh said to him in verses 1 and 2, it says, Yahweh said to him, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Just listen to the text and the context of what we're seeing here. In the city of Nimrod in Shinar, they wanted to build a city for themselves. Yet God tells Abram, I will make you a great nation. In the city of Nimrod in Shinar, they wanted to build a tower for themselves. Yet God tells Abram, I will bless you. In the city of Nimrod in Shinar, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Yet God tells Abram, I will make your name great. I will. Yahweh will. You will be a blessing. And you, God tells Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And those who are of your seed, the seed Jesus Christ, those in Christ by faith will receive a whole new identity. Assigned by me, he says, coming from outside of you. The right identity, not merely based on my fallen emotions or what I happen to be feeling or my passions. An identity assigned by God. In another passage, God says, they will be called my people. They will be called beloved. They will be called the sons of the living God. How's that for an identity? Abraham is the faithful Shemite, and and through his seed, God will carry out his plan. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Paul writes and says, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, 
became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, will finally fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as bold, broadly as the waters covering the sea. His name will be everywhere. Abraham was looking for this city whose architect and builder wasn't Nimrod or the unfaithful Shemites, but God. This city, this holy nation has a king. All hail the power of Jesus' name, right? Back to Genesis 5. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. I want to show you here this, that verse 5 is the center of what in Hebrew poetry is called a chiasm. Uh, chiasm is a kind of a poetic structure. Graphically, it, it, there's, there's things that are uh, in, in, in reverse parallel between the beginning and the end of the passage that all kind of point to a center of the passage. Things that men endeavored to do independent of God in the first part of our passage, God undid and threw away in the second part. But the pivot point and the center of the chiasm is verse 5, the center of what this story is about. The focal point, in fact, of what you and I should search out and see is the, the place that we should meditate and let it swirl around in our soul is that Yahweh came down. Yahweh entered the picture. He came down to see the works of the rebellious hands of men and the insignificant city and tower reaching into heaven, so to speak. A lot of times in Scripture, when God sees something, he's making a judgment or a determination about something. I remember in the garden when he saw what his hands had made and and he judged that it was good. In another way, our Jesus, the the word made flesh, his eyes are described as being like a flame of fire in Revelation 1.14. In fact, John MacArthur notes and says that nothing escapes his penetrating vision. So his judgments, because he sees his judgments, are always just and accurate. Of course, guys, we know that our omniscient God didn't literally have to come down to see the city or the tower. Yet to make his point in response to this secure city and and heavenly tower constructed by men so that it would supposedly reach clear up into heaven, their attempt was so dismal in their secular human effort that God had to come down, in a sense, to see it. The psalmist in Psalm 11 says, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. The citizens of his city Verse 6, Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they have begun to do. So now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. I know any experienced parent knows that when there's a lot of kids in the house and, and a lot of playful noise, generally this means things are going okay, right? But when there's a lot of kids... And no noise. 
it might be time to be suspicious. And you realize that all the kids, have maybe they've put their mind together and sometimes they're up to no good or at least working on a project that might not be in alignment with parents. Here the, in Shiner, all the people were like a quiet pack of kiddos working together on a project that achieved their own purposes, their own rebellious purposes, as opposed to the purpose we've already seen mandated by God. Remember from verses 3 and 4, the people said, Come, let us make and build and make, lest we be scattered. God says here in verse 7, look at your text, it says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's language. James Montgomery Boyce, he notes that those who choose to go their own way will, be, will always end up frustrated. They prize earnestly, they, the, the prize they earnestly sought after becomes a bubble that bursts at the touch. The, first of, the fruit of desire becomes like ashes in the mouth, We may chafe against this, but it is always this way because we live in God's world, not our own. And because God has determined to make bitter anything prized above himself. How many of you know that from experience? I've proven it. We live in God's world. Let's be people at Hayden Bible Church that remind each other of things like that especially during election time. Again, in their disobedience, God showed them mercy by confusing their language here in verse 7. Thinking back to chapter 6, we know from the pre-flood days, because of their rebellious disobedience, God, in, six, in, in chapter 6, verse 6, God, he tells us that Yahweh saw. Again, when he sees, he makes a judgment or a determination. But he saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So his determination after he saw was that he would blot out a massive portion of his creation and start fresh with Noah who had found favor in his eyes. And unfortunately for Nimrod and the Shemite followers, God made a covenant with Noah, right? And, and said that he would never again strike down every living thing that he did with the flood. So instead here, he confuses their language, lest they get comfortable in their huddle and succeed in their ungodly endeavors and bring more wrath upon themselves. God's kind. And at the same time, by his sovereign hand, God achieves the next phase of his dominion mandate. And notice for a second that God confuses their language at Babel. It's beautiful, I think. We also know that in Christ, in the heavenly city, his church, he he demonstrated a reconciliation of this confusion in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost where multitudes of Jews from every nation under heaven, the text says, had come together and heard by the amazing power of the Holy Spirit of God, each person heard what the apostles were speaking in their own language. In Christ, the judgment of Babel is reversed because each person born again by the Spirit of God has a regenerate heart set on a singular purpose now, namely the glory of God and his overwhelming kingdom of light. To the end, that Christ will have the prize for which he died. His full inheritance. 
And you and I are his hands and feet today for this purpose. This is our job. Back to verses 8 and 9. God's sovereign purpose prevails. He says, So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. You know, I have a, I have a problem. <laughs> I, I keep get tra- getting trapped in, in my own thinking processes that the achievements of men will accomplish the purpose of God. I need to yield. I, I, need, I wonder if you need to yield. This is, this is God's world, it turns out. This is Christ's creation. And we are saved Christians for his purposes. He's provided a city, a tower, and a name for glory to him alone. We get to be part of it. Heaven is Christ's throne. The earth is his footstool. Let's humble ourselves today and enjoy serving him in what he's doing. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you would even allow us to be in this room together. That you would even allow us to worship you. Lord, Prior to Christ, our future was dismal. But in Christ, all things. We're grateful and we humbly bow before you, Jesus, King of all glory. We humbly thank you for letting us be part of what you're doing. And we humbly ask that you would make your name great among all the nations and Christ's name we pray. Amen.